Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey there, and welcome to uh, another week. February 11th is the date. Um, and I, I should tell you that this is, um, I will be off next week. Um, my annual trek to the California desert to spend uh, time with my mother and, and sister. So uh, this is our, our last week before I take that uh, vacation. Um, I've got a song. For, you know, I watched the Grammys last night. There is a song in my head. And it's not even a song I ever even, and I can't believe it won't get out of my head. I woke up and it was, it, it was from the Dolly Parton thing. Oh, my God. There you go It's just, the whole way here on the bus, it was, it was in a loop. God, I can't stand that. Uh, I suppose it'll go away at some point. Uh, it's amazing how out of it I am when I watch the Grammys. I don't know who anybody is. I really don't. But I, I always enjoy it because I enjoy being shown the mu music that is happening today that young people much younger than I uh, will we'll consider the you know the soundtrack of their lives um, the the music that tends to stick in our heads and define us is the music we hear in our teens and twenties and uh, I'm well beyond that uh, but uh, mostly I enjoyed it I didn't last till the end but I always I get a kick out of seeing how out of it I am, and I am out of it. Wow. <sighs> so, looks like uh, we're heading for another shutdown. <laughs> I think, to the surprise of absolutely no one, um, and uh, I don't want to start with him, screw him. Yeah, I, I can't help it. Um, <coughs> so the president, God, I hope I don't get sick on you this week either. I'm not feeling great. Um, the president is going to El Paso uh, to demagogue a, a little bit more and to spread uh, lies and uh, propaganda um, about the horrible emergency this country faces <laughs> with hordes of desperate women and children and young people coming for better lives and to escape certain death in their homelands, and um, that is considered an invasion uh, by the current administration. Um, his choice of El Paso is particularly ridiculous, um, and the lies he tells about uh, El Paso are incredible. El Paso is and has been for years, according to um, FBI data, the uh, one of the most 
I'm sorry, I'm trying to do two things at once and my old brain doesn't do that very well, uh, is, is one of the safest uh, cities uh, in the country. In terms of cities of its size, it's, it's regularly like the least violent, the least crime-ridden, and that was uh, well before any barriers or, and it sits there, of course, right at the, um, at the border. Also, the fact that he's going there is particularly um, strange to me simply because um, the people of El Paso voted, even though it's in Texas, voted overwhelmingly for Hillary Clinton. Uh, I forget the exact numbers, but I think El Paso has a Hispanic population of uh, in the 80 percentile. <laughs> uh, so I don't think he's particularly welcome there. The crap he's peddling will uh, be known to be false to most of the people there. Republicans in El Paso, a lot of Republicans. I've been sitting here looking for this thing that I thought I brought with me. It was a quote from a Republican uh, office holder in El Paso who flat out says, uh, the president is just flat out wrong. He's spreading lies. This is a wonderful community, diverse, gets along. We have an incredible relationship with our friends across the border in Mexico. And that was a Republican. Uh, so, all of this makes, you know, my head uh, hurt. And that brings me to this other thing. And then I'm going to try to move on from him for a moment. Um, this w was a, a piece by Jennifer Sr., who, who herself is suffering uh, the same kind of exhaustion uh, that so many of us are. And she points out, I mean, that science <laughs> explains why we are all just feeling like we can't take much more since Trump became the president of the United States. It still seems unbelievable to me. But she says, you know, if, if you're a scientist who, who studies evolution, uh, you know that this body that we have, the human body, is not well adapted to the lives we live now. Uh, evolution cannot catch up to what our brains have created, the environment our brains have created. So our bodies are still somewhere a few millennia back in the hunter-gatherer um, era of human history. <laughs> they are. That's, that's what our, you know, we still got the fight and flight responses, the, the reptilian brain, the this, the that, that are just basic human uh, reactions to an environment that we don't even live in anymore. Um, but it's more than our body. 
it's, it's also our brains. Our brains are not uh, suited for the environment that we find ourselves in. And that's our own doing, again, that's because of technology in large part, uh, that we have created envirom an environment in which the input coming into our brains is just this constant barrage, right? And our brains, like our bodies, uh, evolved to deal with an environment in which a human was maybe lucky to encounter more than a thousand other human beings in her lifetime. <laughs> not billions, not constant information coming in, not the overwhelming visual stimulation that these screens put in front of our face, the audio, the, all of it. Our brains are taxed on a good day. Our brains are taxed and were well before you-know-who became you-know-what. And so we've got these bodies and we've got these brains and they are really well suited to living in a cave and wandering out to hunt and to gather. Somebody pointed out that there's this famous, not that I knew of it before, there's an experiment that was done with rats. Well, of course, lots of experiments were done with poor rats. But this one is um, a, a famous experiment from the 50s uh, done by two guys uh, named James Olds and Peter Milner. And what those two scientists did to these rats is an outrage, but it tells us something. They got the rats to understand that if they pressed this one little lever or button, they would receive this electric jolt, not that they wanted, because it didn't hurt them. It stimulated their reward center in their brain so that there was, every time they hit it, they, you know, there was a sort of immediate, uh, you know, like, ooh, wow, they got a rush. And what happened to those rats is something that we should, you know, well, they, every single rat, had the same reaction. They literally became hostages to this instant gratification that they would feel. So much so that they stopped eating. They stopped 
drinking. They even stopped copulating. All they wanted was that. And you know what? They died. They died. They died for lack of food, lack of water, not lack of sex. And they died from exhaustion. And there's, there's something about um, the environment in which we live now, which reminds some folks <laughs> of that experiment in which, of course, we have become the hapless rats. Um, this is why we are so many of us addicted to our phones, our games, our screens, have to, and, and all of those systems, Facebook, Twitter, are engineered to give us that jolt. Even if it comes in a retweet of something you tweeted, even if it comes with a thumbs up or a like, whatever, same thing. Pleasure center in our brain is rewarded, so we keep coming back hoping for more and more. And it's why people can't get off Facebook. Even though Facebook, I think when history gets written, will turn out to be one of the most destructive things ever created. Masquerading is something wonderful. Stay in touch with your friends and your family. Share wonderful moments with them. Become addicted and just another, another rat in our wondrous experiment to sell your attention to every advertiser out there and to find the exact advertisers just for you, right? Because we have all this extraordinarily personal information on you and we have all of these uh, algorithms that can put you in all kinds of little boxes. We know more about you than you know about you. And you don't seem to even care. So throwing Trump and the chaos he brings with him into this already overwhelming environment uh, is, is, is for, I think, a lot of people really getting close to the last straw <laughs> where you just need to get away, tune out, drop out. Reminds me, of course, of Timothy Leary back in the 60s. Tune in. What was it? Tune in. Turn off. Couldn't be that. Tune in, turn off, drop out. Whatever it was, I thought it was genius at the time. Uh, wow. I want to remind you again of all the wondrous things going on at the August Wilson's Cultural Center. Um, you know, you, you watch the Grammys and you 
are reminded of the wondrousness of human creativity. The fact that some people are still capable of focus, <laughs> focusing long enough to create, to create music, which, as somebody said, I don't know who, it might have been Alicia Keys, somebody said, is literally present at all of, you know, uh, all of the moments that are important to us in in our the way people worship the way generally i think she ended with you know when we have sex everything we love musical accompaniment and it provides such pleasure and creates new environment right so i digress so I'm watching the Grammys and thinking of that and then realizing that, you know, so many of the people that are brought in to the August Wilson Center, they got their Grammys. <laughs> They're Grammy winners and many more Grammy nominees. They are creators and not taking advantage of being able to see and hear and experience these people when it's just right there. Five-time Grammy Award winner Diana Reeves, she was at the August Wilson Center, Mr. She was at the August Wilson Center in uh, 2018. Uh, They have a guy who's like the internationally acclaimed steel drum player. His name is Victor Provost. Um, and he does stuff where he mixes and melds uh, genres, Caribbean music, bebop. And he is a member of the Grammy Award-winning Afro-Bop Alliance. He's performed with Wynton Marcellus. Hugh Masekela, Wycliffe Gordon, and others. You missed him, too. He was at the August Wilson Center in November. And they keep coming. They keep coming. Page after page after page. God. So, August Wilson Center, ladies and gentlemen, please. Yesterday, and this is the case in point, I, I'm just off the August Wilson Center now, but just talking about me personally. Um, yesterday, I was in a mood to just chill, do nothing. And then I remembered that it was the last performance of the one-woman play, Eddie, that we told you about when our guest Susan Stein was here on Thursday. And I was so moved by meeting her and the interview and everything she had to say. And I really wanted to see it. But, you know, you get back to your life and then there's things that happen. Oh, yeah, so-and-so wants to go out there. Oh, okay, this and that. And I, you know, we sit. We don't 
help ourselves by getting up and getting out and doing things that, you know, you initially, oh, well, I'll go. And then things open up when you do that. Things open up. I am so glad I went. Theater is mind-blowing when it's in when it's well done and that was extraordinary for those of you who did see it I'm happy for you just as I'm happy for me that I got up I looked for people to go with me earlier in the week nobody wanted to you know selling something it's a one-woman show about a woman who died in the Holocaust you know right away we turn we turn off Oh, yeah, that sounds like a great way to spend my Sunday afternoon. I don't want to do that. So nobody wanted to go. Incredible. Incredible. And again, that focus that some people, creators, are capable of. Wow. So... I just, I know that I have to challenge myself more to take advantage of all this stuff that's out there. One of the joys of living in a larger city is that on any given night, there is something extraordinary to experience, right? And very few of us do. And I think especially in these times when we're struggling so, doesn't it make sense to disappear into another environment created by the talent, artistry, and wisdom of other people? Yeah. Eddie, the play, incredible. Geez, just flat out incredible. She spoke more at the thing about, you know, going to prisons. Prisons are, and the reaction of prisoners, some of whom don't even know about the Holocaust. But they identify immediately being in prison with this story of a woman who's, whose freedom is little by little by little being taken away. Gee, speaking of that, a woman whose freedom is being taken away, there was a story today, again, I don't have it here in the, uh, I think the New York Times, and maybe you've heard about it, about a princess um, from the United Arab Emirates, I believe, and um, yeah, her father is like the guy, is the head, is one of the richest people in the universe, and 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 she is, I think, late 20s, early 30s, maybe. Her life is a nightmare. The princess. She has been kept in solitary confinement in a palace, it's true. With next to no freedom, she's been beaten because she wants freedom. So even a princess 
she managed to escape recently. A few months ago, she managed an escape. Didn't last long. I mean, her daddy's the king and has resources. And so she was brought back, and there's a picture of her back at the palace. And the woman meeting with her is the head of, I think she won a Nobel Peace Prize, Robinson, the woman from Northern Ireland, I'm blanking on the whole name, Marianna Robinson, maybe. And there's a picture of that woman, the head of some humanitarian organization, sitting with the princess being served lunch. And it turns out that the king, I guess, brought her in to prove that his daughter was fine and dandy. And Robinson made a public statement saying that she, the, the daughter, the princess, has some, you know, is a little sick has some issues that need to and, and actually carry water for the father and king who have stolen this young woman's life. And in the picture, the princess looks like the un, most unhappy human being in the world. She looks like she'd rather be dead, which is what she said in a video right before she escaped. If I don't make it, please, I'd rather be dead. She looks drugged. She's just sort of staring ahead. It was a fascinating story, and I, I didn't intend to tell you about it, but I guess thinking about Eddie and freedom and women's freedom being taken from them. But this is an odd, odd story. By I think I, by ver although this is happening to thousands of Muslim women, um, millions, excuse me, of Muslim women who have no agency in their own lives at all. But the weird thing about this Nobel Peace Prize winner going over there. I don't know. Okay. Uh, what else we got? The blackface thing. Man. Donna Brazil, you know, the the black uh, woman political uh, actor said, was quoted as saying that um, this last uh, week in Virginia has been the most difficult political week of my life because there's no playbook for this. How do you deal with the fact that you got two white, two older white guys, the governor and the attorney general, who we now know um, 
or blackface. And there were calls for their resignation, which they have rebuffed. And then you have the lieutenant governor, who we just assumed was going to ascend to the governorship when this first began, and he's a relatively young black male, and now he stands accused by two separate women of uh, sexual assault. A, it appears that um, the wheels are turning for, an, uh, for impeachment of him. Of the three men, it is his, the allegations against him, which are in fact criminal. Wearing blackface is not criminal. So the optics of what could happen here of the two white guys who everybody was horrified at their behavior, they stay. And the black guy, he goes. That's the optics. Now you can say, yeah, but you got two credible, and I thought Democrats were, we believe the women. And his accusers are extremely credible. But the two white guys, they're going to keep their jobs. And the more I read about Governor Northam, the, the more uh, complicated his biography is and the more I like the man and how he has lived his life but for that blackface and but for the ham-handed way he handled the, um, the outing of the picture. But we live in a time for Democrats, there are two constituencies that are the most important ones for the Democratic Party. They save us all the time. Those would be black people and those would be women. And uh, actually you can conflate those two, it's black women. Now how they, how, I don't know, I'd like, I, I mean if, if Donna Brazil, who's a black woman, said, I don't even know what to do with this. It is a real conundrum. And this is what happens, though, when we've gotten into this thing about the minute something comes up that is bad in your past, the mob forms immediately, and you're supposed to get out. <coughs> we maybe need to learn how to take a breath or two. I need to know the things I'm learning about Northam's, Northam's history. And, you know, I needed to know that last week. Because how can we judge any of this stuff? totally out of, of context. And blackface, this is what I want to get at, is it is in the blood and bones of our culture. There's no easy removal 
for most of us from it. And I'll give you some of that history. At least when these things happen, we can educate ourselves, right? When did blackface start? When did the whole thing about, you know, putting shoe polish on or burnt cork and doing some exaggerated caricature um, of a, a African-American person. When did that start? Well, it, it turns out it started in uh, the same, that when president uh, the president was Andrew Jackson. Interestingly, Donald Trump's favorite president. It started in the presidency of Andrew Jackson. And the minstrel shows that became extremely popular then carried this blackface throughout the country. It was the greatest kind of entertainment. So it reinforced and popularized the idea of black people Understand, they were still slaves. Of black people as dim-witted, happy-go-lucky, dancing people. Almost people. And that was like in 1830-something. Cut ahead to 1930-something, and it's still, whoa, blackface. What was the first non-silent movie that everybody saw and everybody knew? It was a blackface musical. Right? Starring Eddie Cantor. Al Jolson. Eddie Cantor. Al Jolson. Sorry. Um, and the movie was Mammy. Mammy. Right? So you got a hundred years from the minstrel, the beginning of minstrelsy to Al Jolson, and nobody has said, you know, that's offensive. A hundred years of American entertainment. Showing Americans what black people were and are. Buffoons. Happy. Happy buffoons. Yep. Happy buffoons. So, let me give you another president, Woodrow Wilson. Okay, Woodrow Wilson is before Al Jolson. Woodrow Wilson, who was as racist as they come, he had a friend who wrote a novel in 1905 called The Klansman. And that was the book that the movie director, D.W. Griffith, used 
to make the hugely popular, everybody in America saw it, movie, The Birth of a Nation, which extolled the virtues, extolled the virtues of the Ku Klux Klan, and in fact, the founder of the Klan, it was about the founding of the Klan, And all the black characters in there that were awful. I mean, the blacks in that film are dangerous and awful. They needed the Klan to get them in, to get them corralled. That movie was the first movie that was ever showed in the White House. And Woodrow Wilson loved it. He said, it is all so terribly true. And he wasn't talking about terrible being the KKK. He was talking about these black people who thought they could somehow, with emancipation, be the equals of white people. So blackface. Let me give you a list of people who've appeared in blackface on screen or on the stage, okay? Since the first minstrelsy started. I guess this is in alphabetical order. Desi Arnaz, Fred Astaire, Dan Aykroyd, uh, Ethel Barrymore, Milton Berle, Jimmy Cagney, Joan Crawford, Bing Crosby, Billy Crystal, Ted Danson, Marion Davies, Robert Downey Jr., Ju Judy Garland, Alec Guinness, Stan Laurel, Oliver Hardy, Benny Hill, Bob Hope, Boris Karloff, Buster Keaton, Hedy Lamar, Janet Lee, Harold Lloyd, Sophia Loren, Myrna Loy, the Marx Brothers, David Niven, Lawrence Olivier, Will Rogers, Mickey Rooney, Frank Sinatra, Grace Slick, Spencer Tracy, Shirley Temple, John Wayne, Mae West, Gene Wilder, and the Three Stooges. Blackface. And let me tell you, in 1986, so this is after Northam's picture, right? In 1986, there was a major Hollywood film put out called Soul Man. The main character was a white guy in blackface. Thomas Howell, see Thomas Howell's the actor. I don't remember him at all, nor do I remember the movie. But this movie was, the idea of the movie is this white guy pretended he was black to take a f to get into college because of affirmative action that was 1986 did we hear an outcry about soul man i don't know as recently as the early part of this century Jimmy Kimmel wore blackface 
on the man show. He's never apologized for it. No one called for him to be, right? I even, I mean, this is mind-blowing. Blackface was such a surefire route to success for a performer that even black performers put on blackface. There was a comedian named Burt Williams. And W.C. Field said this of him. He was the funniest man I ever saw and the saddest man I ever saw. Burt Williams put on blackface. Black children, actors, were put in blackface. Uh, I'm looking at a picture of Sammy Davis Jr. He looks to be about five. And he's in blackface with big white lips painted on him. He looks to be five years old. Audiences loved it. And then I give you Amos and Andy. Right? I vaguely remember Amos and Andy. I don't think the radio show. I remember the television show. Now, the radio show uh, began in 1928, and that those were white actors pretending to be dim-witted black people. Um, and then in 1951, television, the Amos and Andy show. I remember it. They actually used black actors. It wasn't black face, but boy, those black actors were forced to essentially do black face stereotype. And we, America, thought it was a riot. So I just want to say that blackface, <laughs> it is not ancient history at all, and like our original sin of um, extraordinary racism, it is just, as I said, it's in the blood and the bone. It is institutionalized in America. And if, in fact, every, every person who had ever donned blackface as a Halloween costume or any costume um, had to relinquish their position, man, there'd be a lot of job openings now, wouldn't there? I think that we're 
as a people close to incapable of having difficult conversations. <laughs> I do. I don't know. And I don't know where this all ends. I can't imagine. We'll move on as we do. We have a caller. I was wondering if anyone was ever going to call me today. I was feeling very alone. Hello, caller. Hi, Lynn. Hi. This is Jeff. Hi, Jeff. I'm kind of loath to bring this up, but uh, since you just ran over that whole list of Frank Sinatra and all these other characters, uh, it's not anything I particularly feel guilty about, but it's something I kind of feel ashamed about. When I was a child, I was in the Cub Scouts. And one of the things or the events or whatever that you did was put on a little play. Now, I got to preface this. I got to tell you, my mother was not a racist person at all. She brought me upright. As you probably know me, that I'm not a racist person. And I'm assuming that because she wasn't the most creative person in the world, she got this idea out of like some kind of a, Manual for den mothers, because she was the den mother of our Cub Scout troop at that time. And I guess what seven or eight years old you are when you're a Cub Scout? She had us do this thing where it was like lip syncing with like, I guess it was probably 10 young boys, seven or eight years old, in blackface doing Mammy with like straw hats on. No, and she didn't even occur I don't know to her. You, I, I, I don't know what your reaction is no, to no, that, no. but it's just like no. now. <laughs> so what was the year? Get, give me a year. Well, how, what, what was the year when you were seven or eight? It would have had to have been around 1967. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, because as I said, her sense of mammy was not that there was anything wrong. It was the first talky movie picture, and it was entertainment, and it was fun and funny. We didn't, it wasn't even in our heads that it was offensive to black people. That's how out of it. Yeah. That's how out of it. I don't know. Well, even in like, you know, uh, you know, the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, you know, always around Christmas. The depiction of the uh, black maid in that is also like over the top and, you know, stereotyped and lacking any kind of individuality for this person, you know, the, the character. I don't know. Why can't I remember? Hey, you know black, what? I, I can't remember a black maid in It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, she was uh, like the maid there and like uh, there was a part where like Jimmy Stewart like slapped her on the ass or something like that uh, in like one of the flashback scenes. And at the very end, she comes in and she dumps all kind of money on the table and says, I was saving this for my wedding. And, you know, like a whole real caricature. And, uh, yeah, I mean. Well, you know, I watch I watch Turner Classic movies all the time. I love old movies, but it is mind blowing the racism and and the sexism in them. It's just mind blowing. Well, to us now, you know. Yeah, uh, no, it was just. I guess when you get away from it and, you know, it's, uh, you know, you learn. You know, but that's what, that's we, the thing. We learn. We, that the, learn. we cannot lose track of the fact that we've all, 
learned quite a bit since 1967. And those who refuse to grow, those guys are the problems. That's the problem. The ones who get defensive and refuse, who are not willing to be honest. Well, I was trying to be honest. And well, like I, I say, it's nothing I'm proud of or anything, but no, no, no. it was just so weird. And and the funny thing is, is like probably about two months ago as I was going through boxes of stuff from my mom's and everything, you know what I found? The 45 record of Al Jolson singing Mammy that we had done this uh, lip syncing to. Wow. Just so bizarre. Wow. Yeah. So. Well, thank you. And like I say, it probably came out of like some kind of like ideas for Cub Scout Den Mothers, you know? Yeah. Oh, God. Den Mothers. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Have she a good one, She was not racist. She was Bye-bye. clueless. Bye. Bye. Yeah. We got to be able to make these distinctions. Yeah. Well, it was a Turner Classic movie on that I had on that I didn't really watch, but it was sort of on in the background just because I always tend to have Turner Classic movies on <laughs> in case something good comes up. And it was, oh, I don't know. I want to say Debbie Reynolds, but maybe not. Some perky blonde actress and singer. And playing Calamity Jane or something. And there was so much racism in it against Native Americans. It was mind-blowing. Engines. It was... Mind blowing. And this is the stuff I grew up with. A kid growing up in the 50s and 60s, up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, where I'd only ever seen one black person. There were Indians, they were the caddies at the golf course. The golf course that was called Oneida Golf and Riding Club after the tribe whose land probably that was, and they got to be caddies for all the rich white people. That was how I grew up. So many Americans grow up in these environments in which they don't know. They are clueless and this stuff and caricatures are being poured into their heads we have another call I'm sorry thank you hello caller hey Lynn it's Mike in DC hi Mike I want to piggyback on what you and the previous caller said Um, here's what goes through the average person's mind when they have to go to a costume party, particularly a man, the first thought is, oh, shit. Yeah, well, that's mine, too. The second <laughs> thought is, what do I have around me Right. That's easy. Right. that I don't have to buy Right. that I can get away with being a costume? Right. And back in the 70s and 80s, it was stuff like an Indian. And I don't want to say blackface in the North because that's not a thing that we particularly did in the North. No. But in the South, apparently it was. Yeah. So people adding the values we have now to 30 years ago is really not fair. 
we didn't even have a costume store. No. There weren't costumes at Kmart where you could be the sexy nurse or the, <laughs> the doctor's outfit. No. And if it existed, it was not something that I could afford. Exactly. So I get that it's insensitive, but as Oprah says, when you know better, you do better. There you go. And as I mentioned last week, minorities know who the real enemy is. You know when there's an anti-Semite. When he says industrial, um, what's the catchphrase you mentioned the other day? That's code. Globalist. Globalist. And gays know it when we say, when they say to us, it's your lifestyle. (laughs) So I know when there's a homophobe, I can see it from 30 paces away. Yeah. African-Americans are the same way. And I think we're cutting them short by saying, white people saying, if you do this, that makes you this without having any more data about the person and what happened 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And what people were, I'm sorry. No, I'm just agreeing with you. And then when people say Democrats are hypocrites because we weren't supportive of Kavanaugh, as you mentioned earlier, this is not illegal behavior. No one was assaulted. They probably weren't even offended because it was an all white party, most likely. Right. But to conflate the two is really not fair to my governor. Well, there was a very interesting story about him, I think, in the Times today, about his childhood, about his history. And he had an unusual history for a, a kid, a white kid in Virginia at the time when the schools were desegregated because most white families, of course, immediately pulled their kids out and if they had the means and put them in private schools. Um, His parents, who had the means, did not. And so he went to a school in which whites were a minority. He played on the basketball team and was one of only two whites on the team. His friends were a lot of black kids who were his friends and they talked to a lot of these black guys that he was in school with and they think the world of him um you gotta i don't know i don't know you know i we gotta stop jumping because the uh internet says jump we just gotta stop it and even the internet story, if that's his picture, if that's not his picture, who was the, who was the editor of the yearbook? And who was the teacher that oversaw that yeah, editor that said that was okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, my yearbook at Seton LaSalle, I had enough, they had our names under it. And then all the activities that we did. And the yearbook editor, her name is Carol Hines. She was very sweet. She was like, isn't that exciting? I was like, no, Carol, because I haven't done anything in four years. So it's going to say my name and then nothing. So the yearbook comes and I, of course, go to my page. And there's my very expensive picture that my parents could barely afford. And under it, it said all this stuff like football, one, two, three, soccer, year one, two, three, theater, theater company, one, two, three, math club, one, two, three. And it said all this stuff that I had never done. Now, that was very sweet of that girl. But it wasn't the truth. <laughs> oh, God. 
Hey, thank Isn't you. Isn't that an awesome yeah, story, though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeez, that's funny. Thank you. As sure. Know. Thank you. Bye. Um, oh, I, I made another. Um, Mammy was not the name of the movie. It was the jazz singer. Thank you. Mammy was the name of the song they sang. Right. It, it, the jazz singer. Okay. Um, Spike Lee was asked, can you remember the earliest moment in your youth when you were reminded that you were black? Oh, yeah, Spike Lee said. I remember before our family bought our brownstone in Fort Greene for $45,000 back in 1968, 69. We lived in Cobble Hill. At that time, it was a predominantly Italian-American I wanted to join the Boy Scouts, and I was told I couldn't because I wasn't Catholic. <laughs> that was the first time he thought, oh, I'm black. Oh, God. Here's another Spike Lee quote. Why would not a black person be obsessed with race? when his ancestors were stolen from Mother Africa, brought here to build this country. I just find it very amusing when people say, why are black people mad or, or upset or angry? I think that if you put it into historical context with all the shit that's happened to us, I think we're very calm. I do too. I have often said that if I were born black, I would. I, w I don't think I would have survived. I, I think my anger, my hate would consume me. I don't know. But I've often thought that. So here's the thing, guys. It's complicated. It's everything is so much more complicated than we want to make it and that our friggin' media initially and, and, and the mob on social media want to make things. They want things to be cut and dried, black and white. No nuance, no gray, no complications when we know that life on almost every level is chaos. Jeez. I started the show today talking about our poor bodies and our poor brains were tailor-made to live in a cave where we might encounter a thousand people in our entire lifetime. And look at us. We're overwhelmed. And an awful lot of us are not doing very well. And a lot of overwhelmed people don't know they're overwhelmed, and instead they actually think that they have some measure of control. I don't know.
If you never saw the Grammy Award-winning This Is America from uh, Childish Gambino that won a few awards last night, Grammys, um, check it out. A video. Check it out. This is America, Childish Gambino, a.k.a. Danny Glover, right? Yeah. Glover? Donald. Donald. Right. Danny Donald. Right. I knew it was going to be. Jeez, I get names wrong all the time. So um, check it out. And that won the Grammy. And it's not a pretty picture. This is America. And damn it, more Americans have to own it or we're in big trouble. Well, we are in big trouble. We're in bigger trouble. Okay, I think that's it for me, except will you please go, and I mean this, to the August Wilson Center website and check out the stuff that's going on there and you will find two, three, four, five things that you do want to see. And you can think of people in your lives who want to see. Oh my God, I got to tell someone, please. It's a gift I'm giving you. It's a gift. And then get out of your comfort zone and get up and go. You'll never regret it. Never. See you tomorrow. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.